A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against a brother, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is being judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertain to this life? If then you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who are least esteemed by the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no man among you wise enough to decide between members of the brotherhood, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that even your own brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a first year chemical engineering student, we had to take a compulsory course entitled Fundamentals of Engineering Principles. One of the learning objectives was to expose us to the various problem-solving methods the engineers used. One of them is a method called the Five Whys, which is a process to identify the root cause. It works by getting people to repeatedly ask the question, why? Each why drills down into each previous answer until they've reached the root cause. The story used to demonstrate problem-solving was so vivid that I remember it to this day. It has to do with the Washington Monument. The story goes that the Washington Monument was facing some serious structural issues. It was eroding and wearing down far quicker than expected. At first, it was thought that the cleaning solution that the contractors were using was too corrosive, so a gentler but more expensive cleaning solutions were proposed. However, unsatisfied with this proposal, the authorities began to probe deeper intending to find the root cause of the issue. So in the case of the eroding Washington Monument, here is the five wise analysis. Problem, the Washington Monument is eroding. Why number one? Why is the monument eroding? Because harsh chemicals are frequently used to clean the monument. Why number two? Why are harsh chemicals needed? To clean off the large amount of bird droppings on the monument. Why number three? Why is there a large amount of bird droppings on the monument? Because the large population of spiders in and around the monument are a food source to the local birds. Why number four? Why is there a large population of spiders in and around the monument? Because vast swarms of insects on which spiders feed are drawn to the monument at dusk. Why number five? Why are swarms of insects drawn to the monument at dusk? because the lighting of the monument in the evening attracts the local insects. Therefore, the solution. 
turn on the lights later in the evening to prevent attraction of swarming insects. Voila, the root cause is found, as well as a far simpler solution. This story demonstrates that it is worthwhile to dig deep and uncover the root cause of a problem because what is most easily observed might only be the symptoms of the root cause. Like the story of the Washington Monument, in our text this morning, Paul does not stop with addressing the easily observable issues on the surface. We shall see how deep he goes to uncover the root cause as to why the church in Corinth is not living up to expectations as those who claim to follow Christ. The first why shall help us recap our journey through 1 Corinthians so far. Problem. Paul is angry with the Corinthians. Why number one? Why is Paul angry? Because the Corinthians were not living like Christ followers. Pastor Emmanuel preached last week on matters of sexual sin in chapter 5. In chapter 6, the topic of litigation feels a little bit out of place by comparison. Christians suing one another is something that certainly should be addressed, but why here? Both chapters 5 and 6 are linked by the theme of judgment. In chapter 5, Paul is directing the believing community to exercise judgment internally on one of their members who was guilty of sexual immorality. Paul made the case that believers should render judgment among themselves, knowing that even a little bit of leaven, that is, unrepentant sin, will grow to infect the whole church. Churches are responsible and adequately equipped to handle all kinds of disputes among their members. The next why dives deeper into the cultural backdrop of our text, namely the legal system in Paul's day. Why number two, why were the Corinthians not living like Christ followers? Because they were insistent on their rights. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? When Paul hears that the Corinthians are taking each other to court, delegating the church's role to unbelieving judges, he's genuinely angry. The expression, does he dare, in verse 1, in the original Greek, conveys the idea of having to summon up the nerve to do something. In other words, audacity. It's like Paul saying, are you kidding me? Paul is shocked, horrified that they would air their dirty laundry in public. And to be sure, lawsuits were very public affairs. You know, we may think ourselves as a more advanced or civil society than our forebears from Paul's time. But the truth is, nothing much has changed. Today, we subscribe to Telegram channels or Facebook groups that dish out the latest courtroom drama, and we derive entertainment from reading such audacious news. This isn't far different from Greek society. Litigation was a form of entertainment, and the court of law was a primary source of it. This is a picture taken from the corner of a marketplace in Corinth. See that raised platform of stones? This is known as the Bema, or Judgment Seat. This was the open courtroom, highly visible to all who were going about their daily business in the market. You could be buying groceries while witnessing the latest juicy trial happening right before your eyes. Furthermore, the legal strategy in these lawsuits leaned heavily toward destroying the reputation of the other party. 
The advocates for each side were expected to show absolutely no mercy in utterly destroying the honour and character of their client's opponent, the witnesses, their family and friends. Can you begin to see why Paul was so angry? These lawsuits did more than just air dirty laundry in public. The self-professed wise Corinthian Christians were living as though they were exactly like their non-Christian neighbours. And this was problematic, as the next why shall explore. Why number three? Why were the Corinthians insistent on their rights? Because they were short-sighted. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. As a master of Greek rhetoric, Paul asks a sequence of questions which indirectly expose the pathetic condition of the saints at Corinth. Five times in this chapter, Paul asks the question, Do you not know? This strikes a very hard blow at the pride of the Corinthians, who think that they are very wise. Paul begins, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? No doubt the Jews' converts in their midst will remember passages like in Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the ancient one came. Then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High, and the time arrived when the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. There is great debate as to what Paul exactly means by the saints judging the world and angels. We do not have textbook descriptions of this glorious future but we have indications recorded elsewhere for us to know that for us who love Jesus, we will share in his reign over the new creation. Matthew 19.28 says, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Revelation 20 verse 4 says, then I saw thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and they had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Paul is setting out in clear and certain terms that the actions of the Corinthians up until this point are completely contradictory to their theology. If these saints are going to reign with Christ and participate in the judgment of the world, how in the world can these Corinthians turn now to the unsaved for judgment? If the righteous will judge the unrighteous at the second coming, how can the Corinthian Christians now be looking to non-Christians to judge the righteous? If Paul were a spiritual ophthalmologist, 
he is giving the Corinthians a bleak diagnosis of severe spiritual short-sightedness. But he doesn't stop there. Let's dig deeper with the next why. Why number four? Why were the Corinthians short-sighted? Because they do not have a view of eternity. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. While Paul intends to dig deeper into the Corinthians' spiritual malady, he does stop to provide a practical answer to the problem of lawsuits. And his answer is not a favorable one for those with spiritual short-sightedness. It's not even favorable to us today. He asks rhetorically, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I'm sure all of us can relate to feeling uncomfortable with what Paul is suggesting. Our Singaporean gasu instincts kick in. Suffer wrong? Be defrauded? Paul, you don't know my situation. I deserve to be right. I die-die will fight until I am right. But this is not a novel teaching from Paul. He is simply reiterating the words of our Lord Jesus. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This was part of Jesus' teaching of the Beatitudes, outlining the values of the kingdom of God. Lord Jesus tells us that there's blessedness in being non-retaliatory, to love the enemy and to have a fleeting relationship with your earthly treasure. Our treasure is in heaven and no lawsuit can deprive us of that. In the famous play Les Miserables, Jean Valjean, the protagonist, is released from prison but cannot find lodging. He is turned away by innkeepers because his yellow passport marks him as a former convict. He sleeps on the street, angry and bitter. Upon seeing his plight, the benevolent Bishop Muriel provides Jean shelter in the church. Valjean, at this moment, a broken man with no possession, steals the expensive silverware in the church and intended to run off into the night. When the police capture Valjean, the bishop pretends that he has given the silverware to Valjean and presses him to take two silver candlesticks as well, as if he had forgotten to take them. The police accept this explanation and leave. The bishop tells Valjean, that his life has been spared for God and that he should use money from the silver candlesticks to make an honest man of himself. And Valjean, tricked by the bishop's words, does precisely that. With the money so generously provided by the bishop's actions, Valjean eventually comes into ownership of a factory employing underprivileged workers and even becomes the mayor of the town. While fictitious, this is a beautiful illustration of what may happen when we don't insist on our rights and be instead voluntarily defrauded. Now, don't be mistaken. Paul is not saying that it is absolutely wrong to resort to the judicial system. Sometimes it is necessary to resort to the courts. 
He appealed to Caesar in Acts 25, 11, and 12 to protect himself from a Jewish plot to murder him. Elsewhere, Paul says of secular authorities in Romans 13, 3-4, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But even when we do resort to the legal process, we do not necessarily insist on all our rights. We do not demand our pound of flesh. For we know that we are debtors to grace and mercy. We know that we need forgiveness. To live as Christians is to extend that forgiveness and compassion to others, even to the one who is taking us to court. It is this Christian view of eternity which influences all our actions that stands in stark contrast to the short-sightedness of the Corinthians. Paul is going to arrive at the root cause of their divisions and their spiritual malady with this last why. Why number five? Why did the Corinthians not have a view of eternity? Because they have let sin take deep root. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is easy to take a chunk of passage like this out of its context and conclude as Paul is enumerating a list of sins that will bar entry into heaven. We are tempted to take this list, use it on someone we don't like, and proclaim, Aha, you see, you see, you are not going into heaven. But this is not the main point of Paul's list here. To be sure, when Christ comes in his final victory, when we do make it to heaven, it is a place where sin and death have been completely defeated and obliterated in the glory of God's presence. The key is in verse 11. And such were some of you. Paul is intentionally bringing up the actions that are indicative of a pre-Christ life. A life unchanged despite seemingly having met the Savior, which brings us to the root cause of the problem. When sin is not treated seriously, it can take deep root in our hearts. It affects the whole body to the point that it affects every single action. It can look like you don't know Christ at all. A long time ago in my schooling days, my friend managed to get his computer infected with a virus. A pop-up notification from the antivirus software came up saying that he had to quarantine the infected file. He chose to ignore it as he was rushing to finish a school assignment. It didn't seem to affect the ability to use the computer, so he continued working. Then came the time to print the assignment. When he clicked on print, it seemed normal with the printer churning out a piece of paper. Satisfied, he took the paper, looked at it to check his work, and to his horror, the printout was not the assignment. It was a message in all caps that read, Oh no, you don't. The virus had infected the printout command. In a panic, he tried to open his antivirus software to do what he should have done in the first place. He double-clicked the antivirus icon 
and a message popped up on the screen. Oh no, you don't. In a mad panic at this point, he thought to himself, at least I'll be able to save the file and print the assignment from a different computer. The save function was working and he could save the file on his floppy disk. Whew, he thought. But as soon as he inserted the floppy disk into another computer, that computer's antivirus popped up to warn him that the floppy disk was infected. Aha, I can destroy the virus now, he thought. He clicked on the option to quarantine the virus. But further to his horror, the same message came up on the screen of the second computer. Oh no, you don't. Sin is far more insidious than that relatively harmless computer virus. It starts with the small things. You think you can coexist with that little sin. It's not a big deal. No one is going to know. But the infection has begun. That small voice telling you it's no big deal, it begins to increase in volume, competing for attention away from the Holy Spirit's voice. Pretty soon, that voice of sin begins to dominate. It's easier to give in to anger. It's easier to give in to greed. It's easier to give in to lust. And before long, that voice isn't just a voice anymore. It's become a part of who you are. And like the infected computer that cannot help but produce oh no you don't messages no matter what action it takes, your body cannot help but churn out sinful action after sinful action. Perhaps this is what the Corinthians went through. As a church founded by Paul, I am sure that they would have been in good hands and in good standing when he left. But as time progressed and sin was not addressed, sin became normalized. It looks like a bleak situation, doesn't it? Indeed, it is. Sin is a serious issue. But take heart, because Paul not only identifies the root cause, he also gives the solution to the problem. The solution, being washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The force of the Greek verbs for washed, sanctified, and justified indicates a finality to the actions. They are once and for all events that occur in a specific point in history, never to be repeated. That means Paul doesn't just see sin in the Corinthians. He sees hope. There's still a Christian underneath all that sin. For those of us who went through basic membership course, do you remember the blue book? I shall read from a section entitled, The Certainty of Transformation. Every Christian can have the assurance of their salvation in Jesus Christ. A genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ rests upon the fact that God hears our prayers and promises to come into our lives to cleanse us and to place us under new management, His management. The security of a firm foundation rests not in us, but in God and the trustworthiness of his word. What if a person continues to sin after becoming a Christian? When we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us as a seal of our redemption. The Bible does not teach about the removal of the seal. However, it is clear about grieving and quenching the Spirit. 
It is the fellowship and not the relationship that is strained when there is disobedience. Should we sin, our fellowship with Christ can be restored by our admission of wrongdoing and Christ's willingness to forgive. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We will not be sinless, but God's willingness to forgive should lead us to sin less. In conclusion, Paul has brought us from seeing beyond the surface level symptoms to identifying the root cause of letting sin run deep. Deep-rooted sin obscures our view of eternity. Everything that happens here is for a short while before we enjoy living and reigning with the risen Christ at his coming. If we are showing the signs of spiritual short-sightedness, we should be looking hard at ourselves and evaluate if we have let unrepented sin run deep in our hearts. The good news is that Jesus is there waiting to meet us, no matter where we are at on the journey. All that matters is how you respond when he knocks on the door of your heart. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word and the truth that it contains. If my actions, attitudes, thoughts, and imaginations are tainted by sin, help me to repent. I am weak. You are strong. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pure in your sight, so that my life is not only positionally holy, but practically holy in all I say and do, to the honour of your name. Amen.